Amen. Our reading from God's holy word comes from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules over Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, we would ask now as we prepare to hear the preaching of your word that you would come through the Spirit and speak to us from this passage that you would indeed prepare our hearts for the way of the Lord. Would you come now and meet with us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've had a great, great time studying the book of Isaiah, even in thinking through this series and looking over its passages and, and messages. It is... It is a wonderful prophecy. It is a prophecy filled with the richness of God's truth and a prophecy that, well, teaches us much about the whole of the story of the Bible. In fact, Kenneth Boa and Bruce Wilkinson refer to Isaiah as like a little miniature Bible in itself because it tells the whole of the Bible story. Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart write, The centerpiece of the story of Israel in the biblical story can be found in Isaiah. And Herbert Wolf writes, Isaiah could be referred to as the Romans of the Old Testament. Because like it, in the book of Romans, it sets forth God's case against sinners. It unveils the wretchedness of the human heart. And then reveals the way of salvation for Israel and the world. 
Now, needless to say, that's some high praise for this um, prophetic work known as Isaiah. Now, I don't know if Wolf's description intended this or not, this, this description of setting forth a case against God's sinners, the wretchedness of human heart, revealing the way of salvation, but essentially what he has told you is the whole of the story in, of Isaiah in three phrases, because that's what we actually learn in the book. And in fact, we could even outline the book according to those three phrases. If we were looking over the course of Isaiah, we might break it up, as the scholars do, in chapters 1 through 39 as the case against sinners. Hardly a chapter goes by without a scathing rebuke out of the mouth of the prophet towards the people of Israel for their persistent sin and disobedience and lack of repentance. When you read those first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, you are overwhelmed by its testimony of the grief of sin in Israel and the judgment that is impending. And then you turn the page to chapter 40 all the way to the end of the book of Isaiah to Isaiah 66 and we see this wonderful, glorious section that speaks to us of the way of salvation. That God has provided a way for the people of Israel out of their sin and disobedience, from their judgment and the discipline of the Lord, to be saved, to be rescued even from themselves. Now, if you look at that outline, it doesn't take you long to realize that the passage that we're in, chapter 40, is actually the hinge, the turning point in that outline of the book of Isaiah. Chapters 1 through 39 being those charges and allegations and the picture of the wickedness of the human heart as revealed through the nation of Israel primarily in those chapters. And then chapter 40 beginning to awaken us to the answer of the wickedness that is experienced at the point in time in which Isaiah is actually writing his book. And you can see the stark contrast just with those opening words, comfort, comfort my people says your God. God has been saying something like, rebuke, correct, and discipline my people, says my God. That could be the summary of the first 39 chapters. And now in chapter 40, he begins, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Now, I think in order to appreciate what it is that's going on in chapter 40 and the shift from the allegations and charges and the, and the technicolor display of the sins of the life of Israel in those first 39 chapters, we have to sort of understand, well, how they got there, what happened, where did they go wrong, and where are they at the moment that Isaiah is speaking these words of comfort here in Isaiah chapter 40. Well, we could language it, I think, a number of ways to describe the wickedness of Israel in the days of Isaiah's writing, but maybe most simply, we could distill it down to this, that Israel trusted in men and nations rather than in God. Israel was trusting in men and nations rather than in God. Now, when you look over those first 39 chapters, you recognize that this happened in a variety of ways. But one of the ways that this happened most often was when Israel experienced fear. Isn't that how we often abandon our God is in the moment where we experience fear, in the moment we experience threat, and we begin to look to everything in the world to solve it rather than to actually look to God. Well, that's exactly what was happening to Israel 
They had the threat of war. They had the threat of pagan nations around them going to invade them and destroy them. And so they turned their attention to the mighty superpowers and tried to make treaties with them and alliances with them. Um, wrote agreements on uh, pieces of, of paper in order to agree that there would be a peace among them. They did this with Assyria, for instance. They did this with Egypt, two of the great superpowers of the time. And we saw that the people of Israel increasingly trusted in their abilities to yoke themselves to powerful men and nations as the means by which they would be protected rather than to set their confidence in the Lord. They had forgotten the foundational truth of Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And not from Assyria, not from Egypt, not from America for that matter. Our help comes from the Lord. Now for years, Israel had been trusting in their ability um, to gain confidence and security and alliance with pagan nations as a means for their livelihood and health and growth as a nation. And they had never were listening to the warnings that God had issued to them of their idolatry. You see, what had happened was that they started serving the gods of Assyria. They started serving the gods of Egypt. Not just looking to the kings and the men's and the nations themselves, but actually beginning to to infiltrate the religious practices within their own world as they worshipped Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, of the people of Israel. They also syncretized or joined with or mixed in the religious practices of other nations. And much to the warning of our God, because of the idolatry of the people, they persisted in it. And so at this point in the narrative, God has lost his patience with the people of Israel. He has been long-suffering. He has bore with them in their wickedness. And yet their unwillingness to repent continually has led to the point where in the previous chapter, Isaiah tells the people of Israel, judgment from the Lord is coming. That in a matter of a hundred years, the nation known as Babylon, at this point in time, a modest nation, um, not one of the major players in the global theater of power. Assyrian Egypt would have been that. But in a hundred years of time, Babylon will be the 10,000-pound gorilla on the block. And they are going to invade Jerusalem. And you Israelites are going to be taken into exile. The judgment of the Lord is coming. And actually, if you read your history books, some of you in this room will know that in 586 B.C., that's exactly what happened. Babylon invaded Israel and drug its people into exile, just as Isaiah had prophesied. So you can imagine as we enter into Isaiah chapter 40, where the people of Israel are. They've just heard the worst news they could possibly imagine. Their houses are going to be burned. Their children and their grandchildren, even themselves, are going to be dragged to a foreign nation. They're going to see the temple raised to the ground. Everything that they have loved about the promised land is going to be lost. It's an utter nightmare. But maybe even underneath all of the horror of those immediate things that come to mind is the fact that they would have had spiritual questions. You see, God had promised years ago to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12... And in Genesis 15, that his people, Israel, were his chosen people. 
He was going to use them as a sort of billboard for his glory to the rest of the world. It was through Israel we're told that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. That's a direct quote from Genesis chapter 12. And now we seem to see uh, through the prophecy of Isaiah that that's going to be lost. That the hopes of that kind of future glory for Israel are going to be dashed. That Israel will be little more than a footnote uh, of a nation in the ancient Near East in this time period. Never realizing the glory that was prophesied about them. You could imagine the kind of anguish they would have experienced, the kind of doubt that would have plagued their own minds and hearts as they heard those words from Isaiah in the previous chapter. And then out of that darkness comes Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, That her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord double for all her sins. Now if Kenneth Boa is right that Isaiah is a miniature look at the Bible in one book. The whole of the narrative of the scriptures in one book. Then I'd like to propose that Isaiah 40 is the John 3.16 of that Bible in the Old Testament. This is the promise of grace. A people who are lost, a people who are soon to be exiled, a people who have been trapped in their own sinfulness, the people who are waiting for the impending judgment and discipline of the Lord to fall upon them. God comes to them and says, Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her, for her warfare is ended. Now here's what's shocking about this. You're actually thinking about this in time. Uh, The people of Israel, as they hear Isaiah chapter 40, have not even gone into exile. They're a hundred years from the destruction that was prophesied in the previous chapter. But God is already going even further into that future. He's going beyond that exile and the destruction of Babylon. And he's telling them that the destruction and the exile is not the last word. That he is going to bring them back out of that exile that's still further into the future. There is not devastation, but comfort. That there's not harshness and anguish, but there's tenderness. That the warfare is going to cease. That your iniquity will not always hang over your head. The, The verdict of death for sin will be erased. There will be a legal pardon that is given to you. The full record of your sins will be paid. He's casting an eye to an even further future. Now, here's what's interesting. If you can just sit there and be ancient Israelites in this moment, in the early 500s B.C., you've just heard of losing your house, the destruction of your beautiful little chapel in downtown Franklin. You've just thought of now your children and your grandchildren who are going to be drug off by pagans to a faraway land, and who knows what's going to be done to them. And God says... All that's about to happen here in just a few decades. But don't despair. Because when all of that goes down and you're in exile for a lengthy period of time, my grace is going to revisit you and bring you back into the land. Comfort, comfort my people. 
Isn't it fascinating that the Lord, even as he is exercising judgment towards the people of Israel, is already ceding to them the gospel of his kindness and his grace. That alongside his prophecy of judgment, he leaves them with the recognition that this is not the end. The gracious end of mine is coming to you after the judgment has fallen. God lets his favor be known even in the midst of his discipline. He lets them know of his love and his eternal care in the midst of real, painful, temporal judgment. You know, the writer of Romans, the Apostle Paul, tells us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness that turns us around when we recognize that we deserve so much worse than what it is that we have gotten. And the Lord has poured out His love and His grace to us. And it doesn't mean that we have avoided discipline or never experienced the painful consequences of our sin. It doesn't mean that God never allows judgment to visit us in any way, but it means that His judgment is only a means to draw us back into relationship with Him. You know, that's actually the design of discipline. The Scripture tells us that from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. I asked the question at the beginning of the service this morning, are you prepared for the coming of the Lord? Now, I don't know what you said in your mind. Maybe you said yes. And if you said yes, you're wrong. You're overly confident. I hope more of you said, I hope so. I think so. But was there something of a pause in you when I asked you that question? Are you ready for the glory of the coming of the Lord, the great white throne judgment, the setting up of the kingdom of God in the new heavens and the new earth? Are you ready for it? Now, some of you very theological types said, yes, I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. The judgment of the Lord can in no way touch me. But those who were existentially in live with your moment of real doubts and reality said, I hope so. That was probably what went on in your mind. How do you know if you're prepared for the Lord? Well, one of the things that's very interesting about this passage is that God is saying to Israel, you're not prepared. Prepare for the way of the Lord. You're not prepared. You know, it comes to find out life is like that, isn't it? We're never as prepared for life as we think we are. You remember how great of a parent you were going to be before you were a parent? Do you, do you remember you were just you were the be, you were the best parent ever uh, before you were a parent, and now you're a parent and you're like where did where did all my best parentness go um, now that I'm, I'm a parent right you're going to be so successful in business you were gonna you were gonna do it different than the other guys everything was gonna be full of integrity you were you were you were never going to you know slight anyone you were not gonna let capitalism get a hold of your heart you were gonna serve the Lord and, and now you find yourself far afield from where you had planned to be you weren't prepared for the challenges that were coming but you thought that you were prepared do you do you know the presumption of believing that you're prepared is one of the great evidences that you are about to fall. 
The people of Israel weren't prepared for the glory of the coming of the Lord. And over and over, they probably thought like you and me, they could do these sins, they could get away with these things. Nothing was really going to happen. They're God-chosen people after all. Jesus has died for me. He's taken away my sin. These things don't really, really have a hold on me anymore. I'm okay. I, can, I don't have to take repentance very seriously. I don't really have to put to death these things. I mean, you know, Jesus has already died for them, so like, it's not really that important that I go to war with them. You recognize this internal dialogue? You recognize this, this use of the gospel that's excusing sinful belief and behavior? You're not prepared for the coming of the Lord. Remember, these are his people. They're us, in other words. Paul tells us in Romans that if he was willing to break off the branches of Israel and cast them away, and we are wild olive branches that he has woven into, should we be presumptive then that we'll always be around? That's one of the questions that this text is actually raising for us who are reading it now in the 21st century rather than in the 5th century B.C. So are we prepared for the coming of the Lord? And we're not prepared. And you know how he prepares us? He disciplines us. Now that was not the answer you were looking for. I know, I'm sorry. This is Advent, this is Christmas, this should be the happiest time of the year. And I just... Well, I just ruined it. One of the ways that he readies you, one of the main ways he's going to ready you is he's going to well, discipline you. You're, you're going to fall. You, you every day fall short. There are, there are sins that cling to you. There are patterns of behavior that are reprehensible, that are a part of who it is that we are. There's, a, there's an alliance that we've made, not with Assyria or Egypt, but with some sins. And we've just sort of said, hey, you can have this much of me, but if you don't mess with some precious things over here, I'm just going to let you have your way. By making alliances with certain sins such as that, we call ourselves prey to the kind of discipline that actually this text is calling us into and recognizing that in his love, God comes and he rattles our cages and he tears us apart in order to bring us back together. You know, that's one of the kindnesses of the Lord is that he, well, that he doesn't leave us to our own devices, but he disciplines us. He lets us experience the consequences of our sin, that he sends providences in our lives that humble us. It lets us know we don't have our act together. He, he, even in some cases when we're unwilling to face this, he humiliates us. And he exposes us even before others so that we know that the trick is up. You know, David needed this. Like King David, who had committed adultery and had orchestrated the, the murder of Uriah, this man of God, it took him years to actually repent. It actually took someone coming to him, Nathan the prophet, and confronting him before he actually owned his stuff. And he lost his son. The consequences of sin are real. The discipline of the Lord is not to be toyed with. He is serious about his commands, but he loves you in them. He loves you in the strokes of his discipline. In fact, his strokes of discipline are meant to conform us into the image of Christ. It's meant to show us the foolishness of sin. 
You know, parents, we see this sometimes with our kids. We see what they're doing, and we go, don't keep doing that, because if you keep doing that, you're going to end up in jail, right? You know, like we see down the line, like where this is going. And parents, kids, I'm sorry about this, but parents are this way. Like we go from like zero to jail. Like it's just, it's that quick. Like you're three years old, but we've got you in penitentiary already. I mean, like, boom, there you go, right? That's just where our mind goes. We go immediately because we see, as it were, the seeds of developing. Like, this is where this is going to head. This is what's going to happen. And there is a real wisdom to that. That these things bear fruit in a certain direction. And they ultimately end in disaster. Something terrible is going to happen. And that's one of the wisdom pieces of discipline is that we learn that through the discipline of the Lord, not to do that. Not to go that direction, but to go this direction. The direction in which he has called us. That's one of the loving kindnesses of the Lord in discipline. You know another loving kindness of the Lord in discipline is we learn to despair of ourselves. And we learn to cast ourselves on the grace of God. Don't you sense that about, well, every area of your life? You know, you look at your finances and you go, but for the grace of God. Right? You look at your health. You go, I'm doing all that I knew to do. And the person down the road did all they knew to do, and, and they're dying of cancer, but for the grace of God. But for, but for the grace of God. We're not in control of these things. We know that these things are in the sovereign hand of the Lord. And sometimes he sends these, these, these providences, sometimes as consequences of our sin, but sometimes just from his hand to lead and to guide us, to shape us and to conform us, in order that we might feel utterly dependent upon him for grace. And that we might learn to repair in obedience unto the Lord, renewed by His grace, that the sweetest thing in the world is to follow His commands. Do you know, the older I get, the more I believe that and the more I love His commands. Do you know how I'm getting there? By breaking them and learning that was a bad idea and the pain and the suffering that came from it. And then learning his kindness and extending to me grace in my breaking of them. And then going to his commands and then looking at them through the lens of Christ. What does looking at them through the lens of Christ mean? Christ has fulfilled all of the commands for me. His perfect record has been charged to my account. When I look at the commands, I don't just have to feel guilt and loss that I didn't do them. I can look at them and with joy say, I have found them fulfilled from me in Christ. No longer is there condemnation for he or she who is in Christ Jesus. They are sweet as honey to me. I don't abandon the law because Christ has fulfilled the law. I love the law because when I look at the law, I see a display of the character of Christ who has saved me. That becomes the heartbeat of the Christian. And it's through discipline that the Lord leads us there. Do you know what he's doing? He's causing the people of Israel to receive his discipline so that they will walk in repentance. Do you, you know what repentance is? Well, you see it here actually in the text. You see it there in verses 3 and 5 when he says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. How do you prepare the way of the Lord? Well, you do it through repentance. Because here's what's happening. Every valley is going to be lifted up. Every mountain and hill are going to be made low. All the uneven ground and rough places, they're going to become a plain. And the glory of the Lord, verse 5, will be revealed. 
And all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the glory of God, His majesty, His holiness, His utter beauty is coming. And when it comes, it will be revealed to every eye. Everybody's going to see it. All flesh are going to see it together. No one's going to be able to say, oh yeah, I didn't, Jesus came, I, I, don't, I didn't catch it. No one's going to be able to ignore it. No one's going to be able to explain it away. Because when Jesus comes, everything is going to be brought into reference of his glory. Everything will be brought with reference to his glory. Do You see, when he's speaking topographically here of, of mountains and hills and rough places, he's not talking about earth, you understand. He's talking about all of the world being brought into conformity to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He means to say that the pride, the mountain of pride in my heart is going to be leveled when Jesus comes. He means that the injustice of the world that is dug out a ditch is going to be raised to a level plane when Jesus comes. That the rough patches which are lies that the world has taught us and the uneven places that is behavior, that is scandalous, that's against the commandments of the Lord, all of it will be brought into reconciliation with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. That's what it's saying. Everything will be as it ought to be. There will be a reshaping, reforming, reordering of all of existence around the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. Therefore, prepare the way. Get ready. Get ready. Now it just so happens that preparation is what this whole season of Advent is actually all about. We sometimes refer to Advent as a season of, of waiting. We're waiting upon Christ's return. And I think for most North American types, as we hear the word waiting, we think, you know, the DMV or Starbucks or something like we're waiting in line. And we're just kind of, we're, we're goofing off on our phone until the time comes to where the business can get done. Like, that's what we think. We're like, well, that's what Advent's like. I'm just goofing off on my phone until Jesus comes, right? That's not what waiting is about. It's the opposite of what the waiting is about here. The kind of waiting that here is the, is the kind of, of waiting that, that came to your mind when I said Christmas is 20 days from now. And you said to yourself, I've got so much to do. I still haven't even gotten those decorations out. And, and, and uh, what am I going to get her? Um, I've got so much to buy. That part, I'm, host, I'm hosting a party. That's like next week, right? Like, I've got so much to do. Like, those are the things that can, you know, I need, you know what kind of waiting? It, it, is, a, it is a preparation for what's coming. That's the language of waiting during Advent. It's preparing the way for the Lord. Now, if you, can, if you can understand this, when the Lord comes, all of the sin that's in our lives and all of the social structures in our world will be brought into right relationship with His glory. His judgment will align all wrongs to be made right. Full and complete justice and righteousness will reign in the earth. That is the end that you and I are headed for. You know what repentance is? It's getting in line with that now. In this moment. It's saying that future, come dwell here, O Holy Spirit. Reorder and reshape my life according to the glory of Jesus 
and the gospel for the end for which he has made the world. That's, what we're, that's preparing the way for the Lord. This is why Advent historically in the Christian church has not been a time of the year where we, um, we go shopping and we have parties and we get in a load of debt and we you know, do all of the things that we do in the context we're in. It's not a feast time, it's actually a fasting time. It was a time of repentance leading up to the celebration of Christmas. It was the recognition that we can't celebrate as we ought until the Lord has made us who we are to be. That glory will not tabernacle with the sinful clutter of my soul. That I must bring my life before the Lord as a living sacrifice and be exposed to the searchlight of His grace. That I can become more like Jesus and be ready to love the things that He loves and celebrate Him and worship Him in the way that He deserves to be celebrated, in the way that He deserves to be rejoiced in. I love the way Ray Ortland put it. He says, this glory that's coming is the bulldozing work of repentance. The bulldozing work of repentance. These, these hills that are going to nothing and these valleys that are being raised up. It's the, it's the shifting terrain of our own heart and life and social structure and culture and world being brought into alignment with the one from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. To him be the glory. Forever and ever. Amen. You see, it's actually what Isaiah himself experienced in Isaiah chapter 6. You see, he knew all about it. When he entered into the presence of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, he was lifted up in a vision and he saw the throne room of heaven. And there on the throne, he saw this majestic being whose train of his robe filled the entirety of the temple who around him were the seraphim with six wings, who were full of glory, who sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. And when he heard that Almighty speak, we're told the, the foundations of the thresholds shook and smoke filled the temple, the Shekinah glory of the Lord. This was him coming into terms with the glory of God. And in that moment, what happens to Isaiah? He says, oh yeah, I'm ready for this. I got it. I got it. Woe is me. Woe is me. Now this is a prophet of the living God. This man should have had a few notches along in sanctification. He likely served with distinction among others. People thought he was an example of holiness and righteousness who loved to follow the Lord. His response to the glory of the Lord was, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Isn't that interesting? He's a prophet. He's one who speaks words for God. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He was immediately exposed. And it was in that moment of exposure where the Lord begins to reveal to Isaiah his own need for grace. Do you remember the seraphim who came to him? Who came from the throne room with the tongs, taking the, the hot white coal, burning fire, and touched it to his lips. And said to Isaiah, this has touched your lips. Your sin is forgiven. Your guilt is removed. Do you know what Isaiah was learning at that moment in the temple? Was that it was, he was never going to be prepared to enter into the glory of God. But God was going to prepare him to enter into his glory. 
God was going to give to him the grace that he needed to enter into the glory that he would dwell with for all eternity. God was going to end his warfare. God was going to pardon his iniquities. The full recompense of all that he has deserved is going to be paid. Do you see, that's what John is speaking of in the opening of his gospel. When he says of the Lord Jesus Christ, we beheld his glory. Do you remember when John went up on that Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah and they saw Jesus transfigured before them and they fell on their, feet, their face on the ground? Sounds a lot like Isaiah's experience in Isaiah 6. And they'd seen the glory of the Lord, but then you know what John had seen? John had seen the whole of the cross. John had seen then the power of the resurrection. John was there when he saw Jesus ascended into the heavenly places. When John wrote his gospel, Jesus at the right hand of the Father, living and mediating to make intercession for him. John had seen the glory of the Lord that could destroy him. But John had seen the glory of the Lord that could save him now. The glory of the Lord had come to crucify his own self on the behalf of John. So that John could, as it were, have that cold touch to his mouth. And hear from the Lord, your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is removed. Do you see this grace that we beheld his glory was a grace that was full, John tells us. This glory was full of grace and truth. It was full of grace and truth. That our God has come in his disciplining grace to lead us to our neediness of His redeeming grace, to restore us through the pattern of repentant grace in order to bring us one day to the glorious heaven where we will be made like unto Jesus and we will know the fullest extent of His grace. That's what Isaiah is preparing us for. He wants you to prepare the way for the Lord and he wants you to know that the Lord has prepared the way for you. He has prepared the way for you. And His name is Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus Christ. What might it look like if your Advent season looked a little bit less like festivity and a little bit more like repentance? What would it look like if actually the spiritual work of repentance was something we gave ourselves to during Advent and we entered in on Christmas morn with... um, A greater grasp of the wonder and the beauty of God's grace. And we found that all of a sudden the things that the world has been looking to, to satisfy them during the Christmas season, everything from hot chocolate to Frank Sinatra to the Hallmark Channel. (laughs) Things I promise you will not satisfy. (laughs) These things are our groping for a satisfaction that can only be found at the feet of Jesus. Only be found at the feet of Jesus. What if your heart was more prepared to receive His grace and the glory therein this Christmas? Because you hadn't glutted yourself with the world, but you had set long at the feet of Jesus this Advent. Jesus, through the prophet Isaiah, says to you, Prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. For he has prepared the way 
for you. Father in heaven, would you this Advent meet us in these words? Meet us in the grace of this preparation. Help us in our flesh not to trust our preparation. For it alone needs its own grace. But help us not in fear of trusting our preparation, not prepare at all. Let us be a people who prepare and trust in you. Knowing that you will prepare our hearts room for yourself. Would you do that, O Father, by the Spirit even now? And open up our eyes to the wonder of this Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.